Good morning again. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. And if you are using the Pew Bibles, that is going to be on page 2. So that should be easy to find. We'll be working through Genesis 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 3. And I will start by just reading chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of the chapter, and we'll pick up on chapter 3 when we get there in the sermon, since it's a longer passage for this morning. I'm stealing a line from Milton. The sermon this morning is Paradise Lost. So read with me Genesis 2, 4, through the end of the chapter. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, and aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. As I mentioned, Milton's great work, Paradise Lost, he asked, Ah, why should all mankind for one man's fault be condemned, if guiltless? It's an important question, particularly for us in the modern West, the highly hyper-individualistic West. Why should all experience the fall of one man? Uh, This idea of corporate solidarity is just very strange for us, at many levels, but it was common in the Bible. One of the most potent stories of this is found in 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you remember, King David numbers the people, and he does so because he's, he's boastfully trying to see just how big is my kingdom. And when he is finally called to repentance, 
the prophet Gad comes to him and, and speaks God's word to him. And at that point, he's given three options. He's told he can suffer three years of famine in the land, or three months of fleeing from their enemies, or three days of pestilence in the land for his sin. Notice, the king's sin causes punishment to fall on the people. Corporate solidarity. And when we really think about it, we, we do have some element of this in our modern life, do we not? How many times has a crooked CEO caused the downfall and ruin of so many employees? We do have some understanding of this corporate solidarity that we find here in our passage for this morning in the fall. But what is essential for us to understand these first three chapters of Genesis is that nature of the fall, that, that Adam was in a covenant with God, and he is the covenant head, the representative as we read about from Romans 5 earlier. See, like David, who, who represents the people under the Davidic covenant, so too Adam is the head of the creation covenant, which Hosea writes about. He is the representative whose actions affect all those who will be born on earth, that all those who will come after him will live in the wake of his success or failure. And so as we will see this morning, God created Adam and he gave him a job to do. But Adam's failure plunges humanity into sin and sorrow and death. So again, following Milton, we, the title is Paradise Lost, and we will go through these two chapters under the three points you see there. Created for worship, desire for knowledge, and banished for mercy. Well, first, created for worship here in chapter 2. Now, last week, you'll remember that uh, I, I discussed the creation account and said we needed to use a particular grid for doing so. Uh, that, that I wanted to encourage us to read the creation account, not like a manual that is giving us detailed instructions for how to build or rebuild an engine, but like a painting, like a beautiful piece of art. We're to ask the question, what is God doing with these words? What is, what is he seeking to, to do to us with this creation account? And, and last week we saw that some 35 names, Elohim, the God, was, was used. Uh, it, it speaks of his entire total control, and creative ability. Over and over again in the chapter uh, 1 through 2, 3, you get this God, he, he spoke and he separated and he made and he called. It's just him acting throughout. He is the actor. But this chapter is interesting. There's a shift that takes place because now some 20 times we will not hear only the word Elohim, but we will hear Yahweh Elohim or the Lord God, the capital L-O-R-D, that speaks of the covenant name of God. And that's very important because Adam, as the covenant representative, is going to be dealing with his covenant Lord, as we see in this chapter. So some 20 times we read the Lord God, and that will not be used again until Exodus. It is so important for shaping our understanding of these two chapters, which actually form another one of those chiasms with the fall being right in the middle uh, you can ask me later, and I'll show you how the passage breaks down. But these two chapters, 2, 4, through the end of 3, have this structure of parallel breaking down to the hinge of the fall. Well, last week we saw how humans were created in the image of God, and they were the pinnacle of all creation. And then this week, we rewind a bit, and we reconsider this creation account. Uh, what are we to do with this? Well, let's 
stay zoomed out and let's continue to ask the question, what is God doing rather than asking the details of how does it work? Because I think too many times the question is, well, there's no plants that are sprouting up and he made man and how does that overlay with the, the days of creation? Now, the point is in chapter one, God the creator is at work. And in chapter two and three, we have God the covenant Lord is demonstrating his care for his people that are the, the, the height of his creation. So with that, let me draw out some of the really important details of this chapter. We'll stay zoomed out because we're dealing with a lot this morning. But first we read in verse 7 that God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed life into him, the breath of life, and he became a living creature. Notice, man is not portrayed as being composed of parts. He's a unity. Derek Kidner, commentator, rightly notes, Man neither has a soul nor has a body. He's a unity. And see, the, the Hebrew word for nephesh there, which the NIV translates being, speaks about the entirety of man, his unity. And, and Alan Ross, another commentator, notes, the Hebrews did not think in terms of soul apart from a body. Rather, the word nephesh or soul describes the whole person, the ensouled body, the, the ensouled person. Now, the reason this is important is, remember last week I mentioned that part of what Moses is doing in writing this book and the first five books is it's polemical theology. That is, he's making an argument, and he's arguing against the false gods of Egypt. And see, in, in Egypt, there was this similar story. We kind of get the picture of we think of dust, but think of it more of clay, as God is the potter, and we are the clay. And God forms the man and breathes life into him. Well, what's fascinating here is the Egyptians had a similar story uh, where this breathing the breath of life into the first man. There was the Egyptian goddess Heket, and it depicted a female with like a frog's head. Now you think of the plagues of the frogs. But she was the one who breathed the breath of life into beings. But she couldn't form them. Uh, she needed the creator god, Kunum. Uh, and he was the one who fashioned people on his potter's wheel. And then she came along and breathed the life into these beings that he had created, the potter and the clay, as it were. But see, Israel has one God, the Lord God, the covenant Lord, only one. And it's this one God who creates for and cares for human beings. And he places them in this garden. Now, the, the word for garden there, it pictures a place of protection, of safety. And so God places them in a place of safety and care. And, and we also learn this is the garden where God uniquely walks and dwells with his people. He, he walks in the cool or the, the, bree the breeze of the day. The, the, the Greek word for, for garden is paradisos, so where we get paradise. Uh, so that's paradise loss, the loss of the garden. It's this beautiful, protected place with every type of food just readily available to him. So you get the covenant Lord caring for this one he has shaped and formed and breathed life into. And then we're told about these two trees that are in the midst of the garden. And as the story is going along, all of a sudden, verses 10 through 14 are like the rudest interruption. Did you catch that? You're reading about this wonderful story of God forming man and putting him in the garden. And then, oh, by the way, there's a river, and then it breaks off to another river, and there's gold there. And then, Have you ever thought about that? It's a rather strange interruption. What is going on with these four rivers or one river that becomes four rivers? Well, remember, for the first readers, 
Moses is writing to those who've just been brought out of the Exodus. And so at one level, what he's doing is he's showing God's wonderful provision for Adam in the garden. He doesn't have to find ways to irrigate the garden. The garden has a river so big that it splits into four major rivers of the ancient world. But at another level, at the polemical level, what he's doing is he's, he's pushing back against the Egyptian worship of the Nile. So when the Nile would go into flood stage, the Egyptians worshiped. It was the life god. And so he says, well, this god, he makes a garden, and the one big river that waters everything becomes four other rivers that water all the rest of the valleys. This, this is this god. But there's another level in which these four rivers are really important, particularly for those of us who, who have been given more scripture. Because as you continue to read through the scriptures, what you find is that this idea of water is very important. Psalm 46, verses 4 through 5 says, There's a river whose streams makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. The pictures of God's city and a river flowing from God's city. This theme gets picked up at other places as well. In Ezekiel, chapter, chapters 40 through 48, you get this very challenging kind of vision. It's of a city temple. Sometimes it sounds more like a city, and sometimes it's a temple, and sometimes it's the whole land. But in chapter 47, it says he's brought to the, the doorway of the temple, and he says there's a little stream that, that trickles out from beneath the foundations of the temple. And yet as he goes and traces it out, it grows so big and wide. It's an uncrossable river. And it says that all of the trees and all of the animals of the entire world and the peoples, they come to that river for life-giving water. So there's this picture, once again, of the river, the water of life flowing out from God's presence, the temple. And that river flows into the Dead Sea and makes it alive. It heals and cures the Dead Sea. Zechariah has a similar picture. We've seen the song, living waters will flow from Jerusalem, the city of the great king of God when the Lord is king on the earth. And this theme will wend its way through the Bible until you get to Revelation 21, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So the little sidebar about the rivers, then, is planting a seed, which will grow into a great oak throughout the rest of Scripture. And it's meant to show us that the Garden of Eden was the first temple. It was the first place where God dwelt with his people. After all, that's what the temple is. Uh, the temple's not about the masonry. Uh, don't misunderstand the bricks for the purpose. The purpose is the temple facilitated God meeting with man. But there was no need in Eden, for sin had not yet entered. So this theme, then, is that Adam meets with God in the garden, which means that Adam is like a priest. He's the priest king who cares for and tends the garden. We see this because verse 15, the two words that are used there in verse 15, that God put him in the garden to work and take care of it, those are the same two words that will be used of the priests. Uh, that their duties were to serve and obey. Uh, the, the priests were to guard and keep. The words are, can be kind of tricky to, to translate, but the, the main purpose is the, were to, the priests were to lead the worship of God through the prescribed sacrifices. So like the priests then, who will later serve in the tabernacle and temple, Adam is to work and serve, to keep and protect the garden, to, to keep it clean and pure from intruders, which we'll be introduced to shortly here. Which is to say that, in other words, the picture you get of Adam here is God's first worshiper and worship leader. That's what he's to do. 
His whole life and work is to be that of a worship leader. I mean, Paul will pick this up. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Or as the Westminster Shorter and Longer Catechism rightly put it, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is why our first point is created for worship. Adam's entire existence is bound up with glorifying and worshiping this Creator God. He is to image, reflect God's glory back to Him. So Adam is to to worship Him through His work, and that's why we come back to in verse 15, and we're reminded, oh, by the way, God put Him in the garden, and He gave Him a, a job to do. First, He's not to eat from this tree, but He has all the food He could possibly eat from. But if you eat from that tree in that day, the Hebrew reads, dying you will die. Or we say, you will certainly or surely die. So God now declares that this priest king cannot be alone. He needs a helper. And the story unfolds as to how it was Adam found his helper. It it started with just Adam. And he'd received this command of God to be a priest king. And God parades before him all the animals and the birds. And he's looking for his helper. And Adam images God by leading this worship procession, as it were, naming the animals. In chapter 1, God had made and named, and now in chapter 2, Adam, the image of God, the one in the likeness of God, he doesn't create, but he names, just like God names. But as he gets to the end of the list, there is no helper that is suitable for him. And so we're given the familiar story that God puts him into a deep sleep and takes a rib, and from the rib he makes woman, Isha, who is taken from man, Ish, and then the NIV in, in that verse, this, I think the ESV is better, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Uh, the picture is that Adam has gone through all of the animals, and we don't know how many varieties there were then, but he'd done his job, and he'd been worshipfully naming the creatures, and then he finally sees Eve and says, at last, this is my helper, my counterpart, my other. She is, the Hebrew neged, she's opposite, his, his perfect helpmeet, his finisher, as it was. And then we read in verse 24, that foundational verse for marriage, and the man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And there in paradise is the first couple, naked, unashamed, in the presence of God, living for his glory. What a picture. Uh, years ago, Phil Wickham wrote a song, I want to go back to Eden. And there's, there's definitely some truth to that. And at one level, we would say, as we'll see in this next chapter, everything has changed. Because we now we live in a, a world with sorrow and sickness and suffering. But at another level, not as much has changed. Because I will tell you, today, I guarantee you that you live for something. Uh, there is something that you worship, that you shape your entire life around. We all worship. And maybe you might be here this morning and you would not consider yourself a Christian Make no mistake, friend, you are a worshiper. You you build your life around something. You have a vision of what the good life is and what the fulfilling life is. And whatever that is, that is your functional God. That's your functional center of worship. And you don't have to take my word for it. David Foster Wallace, Wallace, uh, atheist novelist who, who passed. But years ago, at 2005, he did a commencement speech for Kenyon College. Now, he's an atheist, but listen to these words. He says it better than most. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. 
The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will never need ever, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're not evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They're the default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. David Foster Wallace was an insightful critic indeed. What about for you this morning? What do you worship? What do you build your life around? What defines happiness and goodness and truth and beauty for you? See, I would say Wallace is exactly right, that if you're not conscious about what you're worshiping, then you will subconsciously, unconsciously start to worship all sorts of things, and they will control you. Or as John Calvin said so well ago, the, the human heart is an idle factory, constantly creating some new thing to worship. You see, friends, we've been made to enjoy and worship the infinite God. So anything that is finite will never ultimately satisfy. Oh, make no mistake. Uh, Short-term worship and of, of certain things can be wonderful. It can be exhilarating. But eventually, they will all leave you broken and empty. And this is the heart of this passage this morning. That Adam and Eve were created by the covenant Lord to be in covenant relationship and worship of the infinite God. But they leaned on their own understanding. They decided to define truth and knowledge for themselves. So as Augustine famously said, in a prayer to God, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Friends, that will be true for you. So what are you seeking? If, if you are thinking about these things or would like to talk on them more, I'll be standing there after the service and would, would love to chat with you. But we have to move on from having been created for worship to now we will see how we desire for knowledge. Look at verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. So now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat for, uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, Well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Once again, many have wrestled with these verses. What do we make of a talking snake in the garden? <laughs> what exactly are you supposed to do with that? Well, the Hebrew word nahash, it can be translated serpent or snake. Uh, the, the bigger thing is, again, we're not looking at this as a manual. We're looking at it as a painting. What is this painting doing to us? Uh, in the larger story, what we come to find out is that this serpent is, in fact, the devil, that serpent of old, the deceiver from the beginning. Uh, so... Don't get overly worried about uh, the, the, the logistics of a talking snake. No, instead, from within the polemical theology of Genesis, remember what's going on. They had just led, Moses had just led the people out of Egypt. And how often do we read in those first books of the Torah or Pentateuch, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Well, well Pharaoh wore a headdress. And you know what was on that headdress? A snake, that's right. A serpent, right there. And so, of course, when he tells the creation story, it's a talking snake. You want to go back to Egypt? You want to go back to the serpent? There's a polemical stinger in the tail of this story. I have no doubt that they did have a conversation. What that looked like, I don't think that's what's going on here and what we're trying to understand. Rather, what God is doing with this story is he's demonstrating the absolute emptiness of finding their satisfaction in anything but him. To go back to Egypt is to go back to being under the serpent. And moreover, there's a word play in the Hebrew here. See, again, chapter 2 ends with them being naked, arumim. And here we read that the serpent was arum, or crafty. Which is to say, while Adam and Eve are in the state of innocence and complete trust in God, the serpent is the antithesis. He's cunning and treacherous. From a narrative perspective, then, the serpent appears, but all that exists was created by God and for his glory. And that includes the serpent also. Uh, one theologian writes in his book, has he ever pondered that God made a garden and there's a dragon in God's garden? How did that happen? And the Bible doesn't give us the answer here, but we just finished chapter one. And chapter one, 35 times God made, he spoke, he existed. And the whole Bible reverberates with the reality that God is holy and he is righteous and good. James tells us he can neither do evil nor tempt with evil, and yet, here is this serpent. And there are numerous passages where God declares his sovereignty even over evil. This is most clearly seen in the fact that the cross of Christ was always plan A. It was not plan B. That's why Revelation 13.8 says, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Which is to say, in these first two chapters of Genesis Jesus was already the point. All of creation bends around the cradle and the cross and the crown. So even the serpent is a part of God's plan in the mystery of his providence and will. So however we understand this, we dare not picture the serpent as the yang to God's yin. There's no dualism here pitched in battle until God gets the upper hand. No, God is the sovereign creator who chose to create this world and that serpent. God has no equal. Nothing restrains him or forces his hand. Somehow, in the mysteries of his will, 
He has done it this way. And just as God chose to create the serpent, he also chose to, did you catch, be absent in this scene for the first time in the Bible. Every paragraph hinges on God. He has been the main character of every paragraph up to this point, except for the little excursion of the rivers, which I think is still pointing us back to flowing from God's presence. And now all of a sudden, God is just missing. That's not by accident. God chose to do that. Every paragraph hinges on him, and yet here, seemingly, God is absent. He's the omnipresent God, so he can't be totally absent. And yet here, in the narrative, he is seemingly absent. It makes us nervous to wrestle with these things, but we dare not try and resolve tensions the Bible creates and leaves. God made the serpent, and at some level, he desired this temptation to take place because he excused himself from the scene, and yet he cannot be charged with evil himself. That tension cannot be ignored or swept under the rug or dissolved. It's beyond us, but God is working out his plan in time. And so we read that this serpent speaks to the woman and questions God's word. Did you catch what he did? He's, he's portraying God as less than generous. His charge against God is he's a poor provider. He didn't give you anything to eat. What a bully. And the woman corrects him and says, well, no, he, he, gave, us, he gave us all the trees. But then she does what the Pharisees will do later, except for that one tree, and we're not even allowed to touch it, building a fence around the law. Because even touching it, she says, would result in death. Well, of course, that's not what God says. And then he goes back to questioning God's goodness once again. And so he says, well, with the deepest of ironies, well, God is fearful that when you eat of that tree, you'll be like him. When you eat of it, you will become like God. Friend, the irony is the fact that we have already just read that God has created man and woman in his image, in his likeness. They are already in the likeness of God. They don't need to eat of a tree. That's already who they are. They've been made that way. But the serpent has set his hook. And so the woman sees that the tree is good, and she desires it, and she takes and eats. Or in other words, she's playing out the, the first serpent's trick all the way back in the garden that First John 2.16 says, For the things in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the guilty pride of life come from the world. So the word for desirable here actually comes from the 10th commandment. She's in violation of the 10th commandment. She's coveting, as it were. And regarding what this knowledge of good and evil is, there's, there's many different views. Uh, I think Richard Belcher is, is on point when he says, it concerns whether God is the ultimate source of knowledge or whether human beings take upon themselves the role of determining what is good and evil. So that's, that's what the tree of knowledge, I think, is doing here. The knowledge of good and evil is not generic knowledge. It's the desire to choose for oneself what is good and evil. And I think that is proved out in that God created them naked and unashamed. But upon eating of the tree, they decided for themselves that their nudity was now a problem. They decided that it was wrong, that it was now evil, and they decided to cover themselves. Well, I'd, I'd love to spend more time on this today, but we see here that the problem is that since people are finite, our standards will always be changing. Unless God, the infinite, un, unchanging, eternal God, is the standard of true right and true wrong, if we make that standard ourselves or our tribe or whatever, it's going to change because we are changeable and fallible. That's why it was better to let it remain with God. Well, 
What is meant to grab us, though, in this story, surprisingly, is, is not actually the talking snake and not actually the tete-a-tete with the woman. What is really meant to grab us is she turned and gave some to her husband. Who was with her? Those couple words are the hook of this whole story. He was standing there the whole time. In Hebrew, actually, all the words of the snake are in the second person plural. The, it's the Hebrew southern y'all. Uh, did, did y'all? Did God really say to y'all? That's what he's saying. He's speaking to them the whole time through the woman. And the man is silent. And this also reminds us of something. The woman was not alive when God gave the command to the man not to eat of the tree. So what are we to make of this? Was it that he failed to communicate it to Eve well enough? What happened here? He was with her. He stood there while the serpent misrepresented God. Didn't say anything. He stood there as Eve built a fence around the law and didn't say anything. He sat there in silence and passivity. And in his cowardice, after being fallen, when he finally does speak, the first word out of his mouth is to blame God for the woman he gave him. See, when God finally reappears in the garden, he, he walks in the cool of the day. Where are you? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. God is asking this question to, to draw out a confession, a repentance. But instead, there is, there is only blame shifting. And then God turns to the woman. Maybe she will confess, but more blame shifting. There's many applications we could look at from this section, but the main one is the necessity of knowing God's word. Whether it was Adam's fault for failing to relay the message, or it was Adam and Eve's fault for failing to, to meditate on the word of God and not internalize it, the entire fall narrative flows from an inadequate knowledge of and application of God's word. And I would say that is very much true in our day. It is common in Portland to, to meet people who, who don't even know the Bible has two testaments. Uh, the gal who cuts my hair is very much that way. She had no idea the Bible had two testaments. I remember making a comment about, you know, and when Peter and Paul, and she had no idea, never heard of them before. I know Jesus because, you know, the Christmas thing, but just don't know. And yet the, the biblical kind of, the lack of biblical knowledge extends oftentimes into churches as well. You see, starting in the 19th century and then on into the 20th, there was this emphasis on devotion over doctrine. And many said, we need deeds or good works rather than creeds, things we believe. Because doctrine divides, whereas devotion unites. And that was very common. I think if the Apostle Paul heard that, he would have looked cross-eyed. Uh, here's some excerpts from Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And he goes on to list a whole bunch of doctrine. For the grace of God has appeared. The doctrine of God, the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of revelation, bringing salvation for all people, the doctrine of soteriology, salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the doctrine of the second coming, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, the doctrine of the atonement, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, the doctrine of propitiation, for himself, a people of his own possession, the doctrine of election, who are zealous for good works, the doctrine of sanctification. Declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. 
Paul would have had no understanding of, let's do deeds, not creeds, or doctrine divides. No. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Notice what that means. That means that there's a system, a coherent system of doctrine that is sound. It's tested. Now, make no mistake. We, we always need to be working through and studying the books of the Bible. We will preach through the Word. We will do Bible studies with men and women's groups, and, and we will always press in through books of the Bible. But to know Bible doctrine, sound doctrine, you also need to study theology, good, robust theology. How does it all fit together? And more than just theology, but how to defend the faith. You know, sadly, many people in churches have said, or many people have said, I've left the church because I asked questions that nobody could answer. And that, sadly, I would say there's many churches who cannot answer those questions. But 1 Peter 3.15 is clear, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. So, Lord willing, in the fall, we will be kicking off, again, first-hour classes. And my hope and prayer is that we will have apologetics classes and, and theology classes, biblical theology, which is tracing the key themes on which the whole story of the Bible hinges, and then systematic theology classes, which look at a sound doctrine of a whole Bible says on certain topics. And we won't do them all at once, but work through them carefully. So we will be those who are always ready to give an account, to be able to do apologetics with others. We need those things. Because to combat the serpent and his lies, we need to have a clear understanding of God's word, of how his word holds together, and what he teaches us. Well, God has created Adam and Eve for worship, but they desire to be like God by determining for themselves what was good and evil. And that brings us to our third point, banished for mercy. We will look at verses 14 through 24. So, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And Adam named Eve his wife because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden, uh, cherubim and the flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. <clears throat> so once again, there's another word play going on here in the Hebrew. Hebrew is all about word plays. And it says the serpent who was Arum, more crafty than all the animals, he's now more cursed, Arur. 
The punishment fits the crime is what's being played out here. And the point is not that he lost his feet or wings as sometimes have been portrayed in flannel graphs. The point is that he's cursed. He's doomed. Or as Martin Luther sung it so well, lo, his doom is sure. And yet, until that final judgment, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will be at enmity. And God then, after pronouncing this curse on the serpent, he turns to the woman. Notice she is not cursed like the serpent is. However, the result of sin now, living in a fallen world, means that her childbearing pain will be greatly increased. And then we read that her desire will be for her husband, but he will rule over her. Now, many modern commentators want to try to avoid what this passage is saying. Um, and and it's, I, I find it rather remarkable the ways they try to get around the text. But the text is clear. This is demonstrating that the continuation of the first sin that his passivity resulted in the woman leading him. And so this broken relationship will continue on in husbands and wives. The response from the husband will either be one of continued and greater passivity or sinful domineering and ruling over his wife. And this is common in our culture. If you ever watch any sitcom, uh, this is the trope that is often played out. It, it shows a husband who's a bit clueless, he's daft, he's passive, he's kind of magoo, and the wife is far more in touch, and she's always having to clean up after his messes. I mean, I could list a whole bunch of them. This is kind of a common thing. Because comedy is the stuff of life. And this pattern of passive men needing their wives to take over and fill the vacuum created by their failed leadership, it rings true. But then there's also the horror movies, the horror accounts of men on the other side of the story who are domineering and abusive and whose wives have to flee from their horrendous abuse. See, God warned that this is how it was going to play out back at the beginning. And there's much I'd like to say about these matters by way of application, but I'll try and keep some comments brief. See, if we're not careful, we can read this story almost as if Eve is the first one to sin. That's the way it seems to read if you're not careful. However, the New Testament makes it clear that Adam is actually the root problem in his passivity. That's why we read from Romans 5 earlier. You'll see this again in 1 Corinthians 15, and you can read more about it in 1 Timothy 2. Adam was charged with keeping the garden to beat back the snake from intruding in, but he abandoned his post. He was with her. He said nothing. He did not banish the serpent. He did not correct her misrepresenting the words of God. So all this to say, while chapter 1 made it abundantly clear that men and women are made in the image of God, co-equal, that God also created roles, and he created men to lead in the home and the church, as is displayed by the fact that he made him first and paraded all the animals before him until he created the woman to be his, his helper, his counterpart. And frankly, this is a sad reality that many men continue in the footsteps of Adam. It's a sad reality that comedically we just resonate with this picture of passive men, or that we kind of just uh, look the other way at the abusive men. Now, as I said last week, I think many of the gender stereotypes that, that have come down to us through the ages are, are horrible and unhelpful. They have done way more harm than good. But it's not a gender stereotype to say that men need to lead and wash their wives and children with the water of the word. That's a biblical command. See, it's not a gender stereotype to say that if you're a man who is looking at pornography, you're objectifying another human being made in the image of God 
and you're treating them like a product to be used and disposed of. That, that's not stereotype. That's God's word. It's not a gender stereotype to say that if men don't step up and press into the word and grow and desire the office of elders, then churches will lack the biblically defined leadership that the Bible lays out for us. Those aren't stereotypes. That's biblical reasoning. Now, moreover, it's not a gender stereotype to say that men need to lead well because Adam's failure to lead is specifically what God calls out in verse 17, because you listened to her instead of leading. But on the other side of this, it is the heart of wickedness and the height of wickedness for any man to use his God-given leadership role to be domineering and abusive. And it is a sad commentary that many churches have covered those things up in years past. But they haven't been dealt with the way they should have been dealt with. Just give them one more chance. I grew up with that in my own childhood, and I can tell you families, family stories about those types of conversations happening, and that is repulsive, and that should not be named among God's people either. No, leaders lay their lives down for those they lead. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. So there's much more I'd like to say. We need to move on. But what we see, then again with Adam as well, is that it is not he who is cursed, but the ground that is cursed because of their sin. Whereas in paradise they had endless provision of food, now he will labor by the sweat of his brow, and the ground will produce thorns and thistles instead of the fruit that he needs for food and sustenance. Only by hard labor will they eat of the food of the ground. And ironically... In Adam and Eve's rejecting of God's law so as to be like him results in them returning to the dust from which they came. The way was not up. The way was down. Well, this chapter closes with the news that God himself will make garments of skin for them. And the commentators disagree about the significance of that. I, for one, would say that God here is showing them that in the day they would eat of the tree, they would surely die. And yet he was willing to offer a substitute for them. So there certainly was death that day. It was the animal who died in their place. And I think that God is laying out here the, the, the expectation of the sacrificial system which will come when you laid your hands on the animal's head as it died for you in your place as a substitution. So now they are banished from the garden. And the only way back in to access that tree of life is to go through the cherubim, which are the angels that cover the Ark of the Covenant, once again giving us the picture of, of Eden as the temple of God and Adam as the priest king who has now fallen from grace. And the only way back in to access the tree of life and, and to have presence with God is to experience the blow of the sword, the blow of justice. So this is the fall. And the Puritans had a saying about the fall. It was, O Felix Culpa, which is, O blessed fall, Oh, fortunate fall? It's a very foreign idea to us today, but all the Puritans said it. What they were saying is this, that there's a sense in which the fall was fortunate because apart from the fall, there never would have been a need for mercy and grace. At the very moment of the fall, in the midst of cursing the serpent, there was also a promise of grace to come. And the rest of the Old Testament will show how this seed of the serpent and seed of the woman will work itself out until Jesus comes face to face with the serpent again in the wilderness 
And he overcomes the serpent's temptation where Adam failed. And eventually the serpent strikes at Jesus' heel, sending him to the grave. But the grave could not hold him. And he conquered death, preemptively stomping on the serpent's head. And he will ultimately do it at the end. But as strange as the language is to us regarding this fortunate fall, we have to acknowledge it because it is what reveals to us the matchless mercy and grace of God. No fall, no need of mercy. No fall, no picture of grace. So it reveals God's mercy and that eternal life for those who deserve nothing but death. This is why we are banished for mercy is the point of the sermon. What would eternal life as sinners be like? Death itself is a great mercy because it keeps us from an everlasting life of more and more sinfulness. And yet it's also a picture of grace because Jesus Christ took the blow of justice from the flaming sword, opening up the way for us again. As Hebrews said, and the veil was torn, it was his flesh being torn to resume access because he is the substitute who clothes us not with skins but with his righteousness so that we can come before a holy God. Well, this morning, as we ready to come to the Lord's table, see all those who have died with Christ and been raised with him, which is what baptism symbolizes. Those are the ones who get a small foretaste of this future feast from the tree of life. The Lord suffers a meal that looks back to his sacrifice for us, his body broken and his blood poured out. And it's also a meal that looks forward to the day when we will eat of the tree of life with our king. And so that's why we'll sing these wonderful words when we close our service. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured, love untold. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. And we thank you that even in the midst of this fall, there was a great blessing and a promise of provision that your son would take the blow of justice for us and yet close us in, clothe us in his righteousness. So we thank you for that wonderful truth. And as we celebrate it in the supper, we pray that you would continue to work in us through your spirit to make us more like your son. For his name we pray, amen.